0: Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June nineteenth, two 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present On the Wisdom of Solomon, and this is part three. It is subtitled The Remedy for Sin and Death. This presentation is actually slightly shorter than usual. However, I am not certain that will be characteristic of the course of this commentary. I stopped at a point which I thought was appropriate, which is my custom to do regardless of the length of the podcast. In our next presentation, I hope to present all of Wisdom Chapter 2 because it seems that it all belongs together. In the first two presentations of this commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, we hope to have refuted many of the criticisms of the work which set out to prove by its language and vocabulary that it was not written until the first century before Christ or, according to some claims, even later, over the first century after Christ. Those same critics usually repeat the unfounded claim that it must have been written by some Alexandrian Jew. Jew, Judean, at that time we probably couldn't tell. However, as we discuss the actual content of the work, we hope to make it evident that such claims are also false. One avenue of investigation in our answering the Critics of Wisdom was left open where earlier we had described a source which claimed that fragments of the wisdom of Solomon were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In an article found at an internet ministry, and this is from part one of this series, this claim was made and a book was cited, a survey of Old Testament introduction, and that's basically a textbook written by one Gleason Archer. It was first published in 1974. We ordered a used copy of that book, which we expected to be the same 1985 edition of the work as was quoted by the article in question, but it was not. Instead, we received a revised and extended 1994 printing. This newer printing does not mention the wisdom of Solomon, and we surmise that the article was citing an appendix to the book because the pagination is different which is a catalog of books found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Solomon, the Wisdom of Solomon was not listed, and it's not mentioned elsewhere in the indexes or or from what I saw in the book itself. We may further pursue this, but Wisdom is not listed in the 1994 version of the catalog. Now, we may have already begun to prove from the contents of the book itself, that wisdom is an authentic work. Where at the end of our first presentation in this commentary, we discussed the opening verse of wisdom. There we saw the expression of a clearly Christian concept from the 82nd Psalm, which was cited by Yahshua Christ as it is recorded in the Gospel of John and echoed by Paul of Tarsus in his first epistle to the Corinthians. This book of wisdom is addressed to ye that be judges of the earth, and it is revealed in Christ that they are the saints among the children of Israel having come to the gospel of Christ. Christ informs us in the Old Testament that it referred to, Christ informs us that the the verse in the 82nd Psalm in the Old Testament referred to the children of Israel to whom the law was delivered, where he said, if he called them gods, and this is in John chapter 10, verse 35, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. So by that we see how the 82nd psalm should be interpreted, and that is also the context of the psalm itself. It is evident in John chapter 10 that the Jews opposed to Christ did not understand this, and that they were actually offended by it. There is some evidence that later in Jewish, that later Jewish literature, in later Jewish literature, The 82nd Psalm was understood to refer to judges, among several other interpretations extant in early Talmudic literature. But the judges addressed in the Psalm were imagined to have been angels and not the saints. And Paul of Tarsus had also attested to the Corinthians that the saints would ultimately judge even the angels. We see this opening verse of wisdom to be a clarification of the opening lines of the 82nd Psalm, to be explained only in the words of Christ and of Paul of Tarsus. And that is something which neither the early Christian writers nor the Alexandrian Jews, such as Philo, seemed to understand. So on that basis do we begin to reject the notion that wisdom was written by an Alexandrian Jew, because we have no evidence whatsoever that any Alexandrian Jew or any Alexandrian Christian who were formerly some Judeans and some Gnostics had understood that line from the 82nd Psalm or that line from John chapter 10, or this line from the wisdom of Solomon in that manner. But they all complement each other, including Paul's statements in First Corinthians chapter 5, asking the Christian assembly why they couldn't judge the smallest matters when they were destined to judge the angels. We had titled our... Our second presentation in this commentary Introduction to Wisdom. Perhaps on the surface, the content does not seem to deserve such a title, as we had only covered five additional verses following the first verse. However, Solomon surely did introduce wisdom from the very beginning of this work in its opening verses where, in those five verses, he had made the insistence that wisdom is inextricably connected to God and to obedience to God. This he did in verses 3 and 4, where he wrote, For froward thoughts separate from God, and his power, when it is tried, reproves the unwise. So we see that those who are in the company of God must reject froward thoughts, lest they be put out of his company and reproved then he wrote for into a malicious soul wisdom shall not enter nor dwell in a body that is subject to sin so we see that when so we see that one who desires wisdom must also keep the commandments of god and there is no wisdom outside of that requirement Likewise, Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. There is no opportunity to attain wisdom outside of the keeping of, of the commandments of God because if you're transgressing the commandments you're lost in folly with this we must acknowledge that from this point wherever Solomon speaks of wisdom he is referring exclusively to the wisdom which comes from God which is found in his law and in his word then this professed need for obedience to the commandments is further underscored where he had next written in verse 5 of this first chapter with the, the wisdom of Solomon, for the Holy Spirit of discipline will flee deceit and remove from thoughts that are without understanding and will not abide when unrighteousness comes in. When a man departs from the commandments, it has it is that same wisdom of God which imparts judgment, and we read in verse 6, for wisdom is a loving spirit and will not acquit a blasphemer of his words. For God is witness of his reins, the kidneys, the imagined seat of thoughts and emotions, and the true beholder of his heart and a hearer of his tongue. Likewise, we read in the 66th psalm in verse 18 if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord will not hear me our last presentation in this commentary brought us to this point and what more of an introduction to wisdom do we require therefore we cannot imagine that where our author speaks of wisdom throughout the following 19 chapters, or I should say 18 chapters of this work, that he ever refers to or seeks to promote any wisdom outside of that which is found in the word of God. For there is no other wisdom which is truth. Any wisdom accumulated by man through his own experience cannot be true unless it is also fully grounded upon the wisdom which comes from God. We shall continue to answer criticisms of the wisdom of Solomon as we find them, and I have a few lined up for later presentations in this series. And where we reach appropriate points in our commentary, we will discuss them. However, presently, we shall continue from that point where we had left off with verse seven of this first chapter. For the spirit of the Lord filleth the world, and that which containeth all things has knowledge of the voice. The spirit of Yahweh, of course, filleth the world. Knowledge of the voice is better knowledge of a voice, as there is no definite article in the text. The word for world here is oikumene, which is the physical inhabited earth. Where we see the phrase, that which containeth all things, it refers to that same spirit which holds together or sustains all things. According to Lindell and Scott, the word phoné, that's the word from which we get the word phone, as in telephone. The word phoné is a sound, a tone, properly the sound of the voice, mostly of men, any articulate sound as opposed to inarticulate. And among other similar things, it may even be a phrase or a saying. Along with another word describing the sound of speech, phthagma, which appears later in this chapter, the word seems to be closer in meaning to the Hebrew word often translated as "voice" in the King James Version, which is kal, Strong's number sixty-nine, sixty-three, which is a voice, a sound, or a noise. Here, the author of wisdom uses these terms to describe the substance of what is said, and it is doubtful that the classical philosophers ever used the terms in that same sense, ever used the term phone in that same sense. And I have a citation for that. It's explained in Elemental Discourses by a gentleman named John Salas, Plato and Aristotle seem to have used the term to describe the sound of a voice, even the language in which the words were spoken or written, but not the substance of what was spoken. Later, where the substance of the words is referred to in the New Testament, the Greek word is often rhema, and often logos, especially in reference to Christ. So where the Spirit has knowledge of a voice... It knows what was said. The writer is referring to what he had previously mentioned. That wisdom will not acquit a blasphemer of his words. Because the Spirit of God knows everything that was spoken. Everything that has been spoken. If the blasphemer had true wisdom, he would know not to blaspheme. Likewise, Yahshua Christ had attested in the gospel, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 12, But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in a day of judgment. While James elaborates on this in chapter 3 of his epistle, we read in the fifty-nine Psalm, where it is speaking of the enemies of both Yahweh and his people Israel, For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips Let them even be taken in their pride, in their arrogance, and for cursing and lying which they speak. So we next read in Wisdom. Therefore he that speaks unrighteous things cannot be hid, neither shall vengeance, when it punishes, pass him by. Speaking of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, as it is found in Luke chapter 12, Christ had then warned his disciples, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in closets, whispered as a secret, shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Before God, men can have no secrets. They are going to be judged for all of these things that they thought they were doing in secret, if they're doing wicked things in secret. As for he that speaketh unrighteous things, the Greek word is a verb, Phthengomahi, and perhaps it was chosen because it is close in meaning to the way in which the noun phone was used earlier, an aspect of the poetic construction of this work. Fatengomahi is primarily to utter a sound or voice, especially to speak loud and clear. While other words, as I mentioned, rema and logos, may have been used to describe the substance of speech. The word for punish is the verb alenko, which we also saw in verse 5 of this chapter, which is properly to convict or reprove the king james version often took liberties translating this word and they do later on this very chapter in fact in the next verse in verse 9 as we cited the 59 psalm reading that passage in context it is evident that it spoke in reference to the enemies of both god and israel and not to the children of israel themselves for christ had promised them mercy where he had said, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto man. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, or more properly, Holy Spirit, shall not be forgiven unto men." And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But then he warned that those who spoke against the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven. In the epistle of Jude, We read words attributed to Enoch. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict a form of that same word, alenko, all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit must be in actions as well as in words, a point that we attempted to make last week in our presentation on the unforgivable sin. As the wisdom of Solomon continues, it becomes evident that it speaks in reference to that same vengeance and in relation to those same people for inquisition shall be made into the counsels of the ungodly and the sound of his words shall come unto the lord for the manifestation of his wicked deeds the word which is translated as manifestation is once again alenkos the the noun form of alenko which is found in verses 5 and 8. And it is properly conviction or reproof, the conviction of his wicked deeds. He will be convicted of them because he won't be able to deny them before God. But here the Greek word, asedes, does not describe someone who is without God, as we would picture the non-Adamic races, but rather someone who is without piety or reverence for God. This indicates that even the impious among Yahweh's own people shall be punished for opposing him. While the children of Israel may all be saved, while Yahweh had promised to ultimately cleanse all of their sins, they are nevertheless punished along with his enemies when they stand against him. So we see in Revelation chapter 18, come out of her, my people that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now Solomon, who is indeed a poet, repeats the concept he expressed in verse 7. For the ear of jealousy, and this is a Hebrewism, when the same thing is said twice, and it has basically the same meaning, but it's said through different ways. For the ear of jealousy, ear of jealousy, heareth all things, and the noise, and that's a different word than phone that's thrus, a different word meaning noise, the noise of murmurings is not hid. Even in the Exodus, the children of Israel, who witnessed many wonderful things, had murmured against God, as we read, for example, in Numbers chapter 14 from verse 27, where Yahweh asks, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmurs against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. So Paul of Tarsus warned his readers in Philippians chapter 2, and here we must read the Christian New Testament, do all things apart from murmuring and disputing. That, you would be perfect, and with unmixed blood, the law is the way to purity. The law is the way back to the tree of life, keeping the law of God, not committing fornication, not committing the unforgivable sin. We can look around us today, and we can see this is going on, that you would be perfect, and with unmixed, unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race, crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the society, because the rest of them all look like squat monsters and nigglets, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. There we cited the Christogelian New Testament because it is clearer and more accurate than the King James Version, and other modern translations. And the message in the passage is especially important in light of our circumstances today. As for the ear of jealousy, this is a reference to Yahweh himself. Yahweh had proclaimed for himself to be a jealous God. Jealous for the children of Israel and demanding that they do not speak against him, which is also a form of idolatry. Thus we read in Exodus chapter 34, for thou shalt worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when you depart from God, you end up with those strangers, and you become a mixed and perverted race. It's inevitable. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one calls thee, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take, and this is inevitable. It's part of idolatry. You go to a nigger church and your daughters are going to marry niggers. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. No, Negroes do not have the same gods as white men. They might claim to. They might claim to be worshiping the Lord or Jesus, but their Jesus is nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. Their Lord is nothing like the Lord of the Bible. And it's the same thing for every other alien race. They might use our English names because they know that they have rewards when they conform. They're certainly not worshiping our God, and they can't. He won't accept them. From Exodus chapter 20, at the introduction of the 10 primary commandments, and I call them 10 primary commandments because there are many other commandments in the law that Christians should keep to this day, thou shalt not, we read, I am Yahweh thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. But by that same jealousy which God which Yahweh God has for his people, there is effectuated an opportunity for reconciliation, as he said in Ezekiel chapter thirty nine, from verse twenty five. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me. When they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am Yahweh their God which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land, and it was not in Palestine, Second Samuel 7, verse 10, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. This was fulfilled as the children of Israel departed, from the places to which the Assyrians had brought them captive, to settle in Europe and Central Asia, in the migrations of the Cimmerians, Galatahi, and other related peoples. Therefore, Paul wrote in turn, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But the Corinthians themselves had originated in migrations of Israel, which were prior to the Assyrian captivity. Murmuring against our God leads to disdaining him and transgressing his law. Even if we do not turn to worship idols, we make ourselves an idol by imagining that we can follow our own laws. There's no such thing as secular law. Every law is religious in in nature. You cannot have a law that's not religious in nature. It either comes from a God or it's humanism. Because you imagine yourself to be a God. You imagine that you yourself has the power to make lasting and righteous laws. We make ourselves an idol by imagining that we could follow our own laws. Doing that always leads to humanism, to egalitarianism, and ultimately down the path to the hell of miscegenation and other sins, all of the things which our own society is suffering today. It all started with the humanism of the 17th century. Moving on to verse 11. Therefore, beware of murmuring, which is unprofitable, and refrain your tongue from backbiting. For there is no word so secret that shall go for naught, and the mouth that belieth slayeth the soul. In James chapter 3, the apostle makes analogies comparing the tongue to the bit and bridle by which a horse is guided. and to the rudder by which one steers a ship. And men often do not realize that the things which they say, whether for good or for bad, can set the course of their own lives as well as affecting the lives of others. Where we read, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor lists, wherever the wheel is turned, or wherever the rudder is maneuvered. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. That world of iniquity, that word cosmos. Cosmos can also be an ornament. It's an order, and that's why I usually translate it a society. But it's most literally an ornament. Speaking of the oikumene, the cosmos is the order of the oikumene. So it's called the world, but it's not the planet. It's the society. Here, the tongue is a world of iniquity. That's not what James is saying. He's saying that the tongue is an ornament because it's small, like the rudder of a ship or or like the, the bit in a horse's mouth. It's small, but much iniquity can come from it if it's misused, and we all do. James goes on to explain that every sort of beast can be tamed by man, but the tongue can no man tame it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Yet where he continues further, he shows how it can be tempered at least, and writes in verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And this is, of course, the same wisdom of which Solomon speaks here. However, the peace of which James speaks is not the peace of men. One must make peace with God. And make peace with God first by being obedient to his word. Without obedience and submission to the word of God, there can be no peace. So we read in Isaiah chapter 57 from verse 21, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Paul of Tarsus, speaking of truth and honesty and virtue, in Philippians chapter 4, said those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, you do and the God of peace shall be with you. The God of peace shall not be with the disobedient, a lesson we also receive from Solomon here. The New American Standard Bible translates Luke chapter 2, verse 14 correctly, but King James fails, where we read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom... He is pleased. Once we understand this, we must realize that true humility is submission to the word of God. And without that, all other humility is only vanity or pretense, pretense to gain the favor of men. The word for backbiting here in this verse, in the wisdom of Solomon, is catalalia, which is speaking against or slander. The verb form of the word katalaleo appears in James 4.11, where the apostle wrote, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against, so it actually appears a few times, He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So as long as a brother stays obedient to the law, there is no good reason to slander him. Where we read, there is no word so secret The word for word is phythagma, a noun related to that verb which we saw in verse 8, phthegomahi. It too refers to the sound of a voice, or therefore a saying. So while it was used like phoné to refer to the sound of a voice, it was also used to refer to the substance of what was spoken by the Greeks, as we saw here, the wisdom of Solomon used it to refer to the substance of what was spoken in the manner of the Hebrews. The phrase, that shall go for naught, may be read, that shall not proceed vainly, or that shall not go forth empty, and I will reread the verse itself. Therefore, beware of murmuring, which is unprofitable, and refrain your tongue from backbiting, for there is no word so secret that shall go for naught. But that does not mean that the words of the ungodly shall be fulfilled as they desire. Sometimes they themselves suffer the things which they say. As we read in a prayer of David found in the 64th Psalm. Hide me from the secret counsels of the wicked from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows even bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the perfect suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not the evil persecuting the good they encourage themselves in an evil manner they Commune of laying stairs privily, words spoken in secret. They say, Who shall see them? The traps in which they set. They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search, both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. So continuing with verse 11 here, the word belieth is archaic, the final phrase of the passage, and the mouth that belieth slayeth the soul. We would translate the phrase to say, the mouth that speaks falsely kills the soul. The word for soul is suke, and it refers to the life as opposed to numa or the spirit. So as David wrote, the wicked wet their tongue like a sword. And as James had said, the tongue is a fire, an ornament, or a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among, among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Thus, wisdom also warns in that same manner. Seek not death in the error of your life, and pull not upon yourselves destruction with the works of your hands. So while it begins by speaking words contrary to wisdom, and even blasphemy, we see that ultimately destruction comes in actual action. Pondering sin. All sin begins with blasphemy, as sin is tantamount to speaking against the law, and the law comes from God. So to sin, one is committing an act which speaks against God. But where Christ had warned that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven, that must describe something greater than all other sins. Word it says here, seek not death. The Greek term translated as seek is even stronger. Do not be zealous for death. Or perhaps, do not seek eagerly after death. This admonition is similar to the stages of sin as James explained in chapter 1 of his epistle. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, seeking after death and the sin of your life, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. There is no transgression of the law until when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin ultimately and inevitably brings forth death. Here, the word for error in this verse is plane. Plane is the word from which we get plain, P L A N E, and probably P L A I N, which was simply spelled differently in English to distinguish it from the other meaning. Plain is literally, or plane, his literally, a wandering, a roaming, but also a digression, or metaphorically, a going astray, error, as it appears to have been used also in the Greek philosophers. But there are similar metaphors throughout the Old Testament, as terms for wandering were used to describe sin. Where Cain was sent to the so-called land of Nod, the Hebrew term for Nod, is translated as vagabond several times in that same chapter of Genesis. Speaking of his own sin, David had written in the 56th Psalm, using that same word for nod or vagabond, Shall they escape by iniquity? In mine anger, cast down the people, O God. Tellest thou my wanderings? That word, it's the plural form, but it's the same word for nod or vagabond. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Now, speaking of the cause of death, we learn that in wisdom, men cannot blame God for their wandering. For God made not death, neither has he pleasure in the destruction of the living. Speaking of the lust, which, once it is conceived, brings forth death, James had said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Solomon expresses the coming of death into the world in similar terms. Where we read at the end of chapter two of his wisdom, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his, I'm sorry, in chapter two of his wisdom, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world and made it hold of his side do find it through envy of the devil through that lust bringing forth sin as Eve had saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise but as Eve apparently envied a tree Solomon understood that she actually envied the devil. And the serpent and the tree were both euphemisms for people, an individual and a race. The serpent and individual represented the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the race of fallen angels, which the scriptures do not describe until the parables and revelation of Yahshua Christ. This is the sin unto death mentioned by John in his first epistle. And it is the same as that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of which Christ had spoken in the gospel. Those who continue in that first sin, which had brought forth death, shall indeed find death. Once it is recognized that it is the corruption of God's creation, which had brought forth death, the significance of the words which follow becomes manifest. We're in verse 14 now. For he created all things, that they might have their being, and the generations of the world were healthful. And I don't agree with this translation. And there is no poison of destruction in them, nor the kingdom of death upon the earth. The first two clauses may have been better translated. For he created all things into that which exists. As the second clause was, rel- was translated from the short phrase, Aisto Ainahi, and it actually stands before all things in the original word order. "istō Ainahi is into that which exists. A very literal reading. Then the third clause, may have been better translated, and the beginnings of the world, beginnings there being the plural form of the word Genesis, which we recognize as Genesis, the name of our first book of the Bible. The beginnings of the world, cosmos, are deliverance, which is soterios, or salvation. The word order of the adjective, deliverance, and the noun which it modifies, which is beginnings, is predicative. And here it is singular in English, the adjective, although in Greek it necessarily has the plural form of the noun which it modifies. That is how the noun it does modify is known because it should have the same gender and number. So it doesn't matter what order the words are in. (coughs) Except that the order that the words are in indicate to us how the adjective is used. The word pharmakon is poison here. It is also a magic spell or enchantment and therefore it is sorcery. The serpent of the garden was described by the Hebrew term nakash, which is a serpent or an enchanter, as the King James Version had translated various forms of the word. So we have an allusion to the creation of Adam, described in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and the enchantment of Eve, along with the conscious decision of Adam to follow her in her sin, which led to the kingdom of death upon the earth. As Paul of Tarsus also explained, in Romans chapter 5, where he said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned, this is the kingdom of death of which Solomon speaks, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come, meaning Christ. But here, Solomon is not referring to the Genesis creation, where he wrote, as we would translate it, For he created all things into that which exists. And the beginnings of the world are deliverance. That's the key clause there. The Genesis creation was not for deliverance or for salvation. Man didn't exist on the earth yet. What did he need to be delivered from when Adam was created? Rather. It was the Genesis creation that needed saving. It needed that salvation. And for that reason, Yahweh God created a new world within a world. That was the kingdom of death. He created a new world within the world that was called the kingdom of death here in wisdom. Earlier, where world is referred to in wisdom, Earlier in this chapter, the word is oikumene, which describes a physical habitation. But here it is cosmos, which is a world order, a society. That new world or society, which is described here, is defined later in this book of wisdom. In chapter 18, in verse 24. For in the long garment, the long garment worn by the high priest, was the whole world. And in the four rows of stones was the glory of the father's graven. And thy majesty, the name of Yahweh, upon the diadem of his head. Earlier in that same chapter, wisdom mentioned the uncorrupt light of the law which was to be given unto the world. And in the 147th Psalm we read, he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgment unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. So the world of the wisdom of Solomon consisted exclusively of the children of Israel of those to whom the law had come, as the tribes of Israel were represented in the stones on the garment of the priest. Through that world would come salvation. What required saving was the original world which Yahweh had created, the world of Genesis of which the Apostle John had written in his first epistle and he said as it reads in the king james version and we know that we are of god and the whole world lies in wickedness or actually the whole world lies in the power of the evil one the wicked one paul of tarsus corroborates this this understanding where he wrote in first corinthians chapter 15 and he said For as in Adam all men die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Speaking of the Adamic race, that's the world that needed saving. Yahweh created a new world in Israel so that the old one could be saved. (coughs) All which Yahweh God created is righteous, as he himself stated that it is good. And the Adamic man was therefore created to be righteous. And as Solomon said, as we have already cited from chapter two of wisdom, Adam was created to be immortal. So now wisdom declares, for righteousness is immortal. That's the entire extent of verse 15. For righteousness is immortal. And it's marked in the King James Version in the King James version of the King James Apocrypha, because most of us won't have it in our Bibles anymore, it's marked as a parenthetical remark, and that's fine. Solomon is speaking of the righteousness which is of God and not the righteousness of man. There's a difference. So in Proverbs chapter 12, we read in verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life, And in the pathway thereof, there is no death. So here we read, for righteousness is immortal. Then again, in the words of Paul, in Romans chapter 2, he speaks of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor, and immortality, eternal life. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, the unwise here at Solomon who do not keep the law, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil. So we see also here in wisdom in verse 16. But ungodly men, with their works, literally that is by their hands, with their works and words, called it to them. For when they thought, called death to them. For when they thought to have it their friend, they consumed to not and made a covenant with it because they are worthy to take part with it. And again, the word for ungodly is asebes, which is properly impious. It is the negated form of sebas, which is reverence. As Paul had explained in Romans chapter 5, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So earlier generations and nations of the Adamic race could not be described in this manner. Rather, it is the children of Israel who were described as having made a covenant with death, which is implied here. And this is found in the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 28, where we also see a hope for salvation in a messianic prophecy, which even Christ had cited in reference to himself. And from verse 14, Wherefore, hear the word of Yahweh, Ye scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Now this brings us to Wisdom chapter 2. And while we will discuss the first two verses of that chapter briefly, because they finish this chapter... We will do a more complete commentary on them, as they are an important prerequisite to the balance of chapter 2, and in that manner, they are pivotal. So I will read the first two verses of Wisdom chapter 2. For the ungodly said, reasoning with themselves, but not aright. That's an important clause there what the ungodly say is not correct. Our life is short and tedious, and in the death of a man there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. For we are born at all adventure, which is basically by chance, and we shall be hereafter as though we had never been. There's no faith in life after death in these ungodly men. For the breath in our nostrils is as smoke and a little spark in the moving of our heart. Here we shall see that this is also the beginning of a messianic prophecy. The impious men had said, but not correctly, that in the death of a man there is no remedy neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. As we proceed through the chapter, the attitudes and deeds of the impious are described, and their words are corrected in wisdom. With irony, the wisdom of Solomon introduces the death of one man, who is inevitably the Messiah, as the remedy for death itself. However, he does it in a way which never mentions a Messiah, while with those words, he draws a portrait of Christ. Once we realize that the first chapter of wisdom also describes what needs to be saved, while the second chapter is actually a prophecy of Christ, then we realize the statement it is making, that Christ, who is a product Of the wisdom of God is also the remedy, the remedy for sin and death. But for the present, this passage reflects the cynical attitude which is found elsewhere in Solomon's writing, namely in Ecclesiastes chapter three, where Solomon had written, Who knoweth the spirit of a man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? Then this also reflects a more general sentiment expressed throughout Ecclesiastes that all is vanity, but more specifically that man has little joy or reward but to eat and to drink. While Solomon expresses it there in many words, it is summarized in Isaiah chapter 22, a passage later cited by Paul, where sinful men are depicted as saying, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. So in this and many other aspects of the work, it is very much like the other books of Scripture which are attributed to Solomon without question. Paul had asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, referring to his work in the gospel, what advantages it, what does it advantage? What does it advantage me? I'm sorry, I'm trying to take this archaic language and twist it straight. <laughs> what does it advantage me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In that very same chapter, Paul had made the rather confident statement that for as an Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And goes on to describe the aspects of the resurrection of the dead. Likewise, Solomon, in the closing chapter of Ecclesiastes, admitted that all is not vanity, because there certainly was a God who shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. At the coming of Yahshua Christ, men knew with certainty that there was truly such a God. As as we proceed with Wisdom chapter 2, We shall see. That portion of this book is also a prophecy of that same Yahshua Christ. The wisdom of Solomon connects Old and New Testaments in many intricate ways, ways which are not even realized by many denominational Christians. And it is for that reason alone that we believe it is hated. By the Jews. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Before I go, I want to say one thing to um, people. There were still a couple of people in the old chat room and one troll. We're not monitoring the old chat room any longer, it's going to be shut down soon. Look at the program announcements on the front page of Christagenia.org for the link to the new chat. And as for the trolls, they will be disposed of in a timely fashion in the new chat. There was a technical glitch with the old chat that made that difficult sometimes. But in the new chat, we will not have that problem. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.